morning, church. We're going to read the scripture. We will be in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to flip over to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. So we'll start on page 916 in the Bibles around the room. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering houses after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now we'll be in chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. God, we praise you for meeting us right where we are. We praise you for always pursuing us, even when we run away from you. 
Thank you, Lord, for reaching into our darkest sin and transforming us into your children. God, I pray you focus us on your word today and heal our rebellious hearts. Teach us to love and serve like Jesus. Teach us to proclaim him as Lord of our lives. Be with Pastor Kyle as he moves through your message. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, Casey. If you don't have a Bible open for that, grab one right now and open up to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be actually in chapter 8 and 9. On the Bibles we said around the room, that's on page 916. And by the way, if you're a guest and you don't own a Bible and you would like to, you're free to take one of those Bibles home with you. It's our honor to give you a Bible. So we're going through a series called uh, In the Book of Acts. That's one thing we like to do at this church is we like to go through books of the Bible. We just like to progressively go through them. And we like to see what they say and see how they can apply to our lives. And the first part of Acts we called Revival and the Holy Spirit. Because it's about God the Holy Spirit causing a revival in the New Testament church. And a revival is simply an awakening to the reality and beauty of God. So that's what we covered in the first section. This middle section of Acts we're calling Revival and Reconciliation. Because this is where... The message of Jesus isn't just isolated in Jerusalem anymore. It starts to go out to people of other races and people of other nations. It starts to go out to the whole world. That becomes a mega theme of the book of Acts. And what's unique in this section is there's times where God is reconciling himself to individuals. And then times where God is reconciling his church to each other where there was previous divides. Be it racial divides or class divides or... um, or national divides. God is bringing reconciliation. So what reconciliation means, it means when two parties have been separated, to overcome the separation and bring those things back together. And the beautiful thing about Christianity is God is a reconciling God. Amen? And so the art for this series is really cool. You can kind of see a globe here. It's a picture of, uh, of what we're, we have here. And you can see a little display up here. And what this is, I hope I say it right, it's a Japanese form of art called kansugi. And what this is, is uh, kansugi. But let's say kansugi together. It's a fun word to say. Ready? One, two, three. Kansugi. All right. Kansugi is a form of art where dishware is broken, but then it's mended back together with gold. And um, we can't afford real gold, so we got fake gold up here as we mended these back together. But it's mended together with gold. And the idea is that when something that's been broken is brought back together, it's more beautiful than it was in its original form. And in the same way as Christians, because we've been reconciled to God and to each other, we have a deeper appreciation of God's beauty because we realize what he's done to bring us back together. And that's what this whole next section is about. So today we're covering how God caused a radical reconciliation with a guy named Saul. Now Saul later on goes to be, change his name to become the Apostle Paul. And the title for this section, if you look at the top of verse 9, or or chapter 9, it says, The Conversion of Saul. I think that this chapter could more aptly be called The Arrest of Saul. And the reason why is because in this section, Saul is going to arrest Christians. He's on a mission to arrest Christians, but he ends up getting arrested by the Christ. And that's actually what it means to be be a Christian. To be a Christian means you've been arrested by Jesus. Now, think about what that means for a moment. 
Uh, like, I have little kids, and so sometimes we play different games, so like cops and robbers or whatever, and they always like to arrest me. And so I'll get arrested, and when I'm arrested, I'm under their control. I have to do what they say. It's a real changing of events in our household. I have to do what they say. I have to go where they go. Sometimes they, you know, they'll put me in a room or whatever and leave me in there. I'm under arrest, and then they forget about me and then go play another game. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm, in, I'm a grown man sitting here in a closet. But the idea is, is that when I'm under arrest, I'm under their influence. I'm, I'm not my own anymore. I belong to them. And that's the idea of being a Christian. Is as Christians, we understand we're not our own. We belong to God. We were bought by the blood of God. And so we belong to Him. Everything changes. And so we're, today we're going to look at the arrested development, the, the, how it develops. We're going to look at the arrested experience and then the arrested life. So first, how this develops, how this arrest develops. Let's hone in on this guy named Saul. And we're going to start in chapter 8. Verses 1 through 3. We're going to skip the middle section of 8 because we're going to come back to that next week. Okay, it says this. And Saul approved of his execution. So when it says his execution, it's it's referring to Stephen, the deacon who just preached a killer Jesus sermon. It was so killer that they killed him. They, They didn't want him. They didn't like the idea of Jesus. And so they killed Stephen, and it says that Saul approved of his execution. Saul was right there, and he approved of it. It says that it didn't stop there. It says, on, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they, were all, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So what happened is Saul and other religious leaders hate Jesus so much they start persecuting Christians. And a bunch of the Christians who lived in Jerusalem became refugees and they had to flee to other areas. They were fleeing for their lives. And Saul was especially zealous at wanting to get rid of Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 2. It says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That's some intense language, isn't it? He was ravaging the church. And he would enter into their homes and pull people out. To put them into prison just for believing in Jesus. I mean, imagine that. You're sitting at home, having a nice meal with your family, and all of a sudden, open up. You open up, it's Saul. He's not happy. He says, are you a Christian? Yes. He drags you away. These are mommies and daddies being dragged away. These are grandparents being dragged away. These are crying little children being dragged away because they believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's personal and intense. So it picks up. So one of the places that refugees fled to was Damascus. So look at verse 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul, in chapter 9, we see that Saul goes to uh, the high priest who is like the the president of the Jewish nation. And he says, I need your stamp of approval. I need some letters directly from you. I need orders from the president to go to Damascus, which was 136 miles away, and to drag these people who are committed to Christianity and bring them back to Jerusalem to put them in prison, maybe even to condemn them to death. Now, 
Damascus was 136 miles away. That's, that's a long ways away. That's a 33-hour horseback ride. That's a 45-hour walk. Several days of travel. And what I'm trying to highlight in this is Saul was committed. Like, he really hated Jesus. He really hated Jesus. And he wants to go, and, and, and he says, I need to go get these Christians devoted to the way, is what they're calling themselves. This was one of the early things that Christians started calling themselves was the way. And the reason why is because the Greeks believed that there were many ways to God. The Jews believed that obedience to God's law was the way to God. But Jesus came and said, I am the way to God. And so they were so identified with Jesus that we said, no, we're part of the way. We're part of Jesus's way. He is the way to God. And so um, they called themselves away, and Paul wants to get rid of that kind of thinking. And here's what you need to know. Paul thought he was doing God a favor. He didn't think he was doing evil. He was a good religious man. He thought he was putting a smile on God's face. Because as a very religious Jew, we find out later he was a Pharisee, who, which was somebody who paid very close attention to the Bible and law. He probably memorized at least the first five books of the Bible, if not more. As a very good religious leader, he understood that to call anybody other than God, God, was blasphemy. And he considered Christians blasphemous because they were calling Jesus God. And Jesus didn't fit into his box. And because Jesus didn't fit into his box as God, then clearly the Christians who worshipped Jesus as God were blasphemers and deserved to be put in prison and even deserved to face capital punishment. He thought he was on the right path. Turns out he wasn't. Turns out he was actually opposing Jesus. Look at what happens in verse 4. It says, and, or in verse 3, it says, Now he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. Whom you're persecuting. So here's what's going on. Saul gets close to Damascus. His long journey is getting ended. He's probably running through his mind the plans that he's going to do to capture these Christians. And later on, when Saul recounts this story at the end of Acts, he says it was the middle of the day. It was noon. And all of a sudden, a bright light shines. Now imagine that. It's noon. It's already bright outside. But an even brighter light, brighter than the sun, comes down and just knocks you to the ground. That's intense. And he and the others with him hit the deck. And the, the voice says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? What's important to know is that Jesus identifies that it's him who's speaking. And what's important to know is this, is that Jesus knew Saul long before Saul knew Jesus. And that's how salvation works. God knows us long before we know him. And Saul gets put on trial by Jesus. <laughs> he sa Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? Now, any reader of this, and maybe even Saul thought at this moment, I'm not persecuting you, I'm dragging away Christians. But here's the thing you need to understand. Jesus is so unified with his people, the church, that to hate on or hurt the church, he, he takes that personally. It's to hate on or hurt him. Think of it like, I think that this is maybe where Saul gets the idea later on when he says that Jesus is the head and the church is the body. 
Like, think about it. If you were to punch, like if you were to come up here and punch me in the stomach, like if Jason were to come up here and punch me in my stomach, my head would say to him, why did you just punch me? It would be a silly thing for him to say, well, I didn't punch you, head. I punched you, stomach. But my head says, no, we're all attached. You punched me, and it hurts. You see, that's what's going on here. And the reason that is so, that's such the case is because the same blood that runs through my head runs through my body. And the same blood that runs through Jesus runs through his church. And when you hurt the church, when you speak against the church, when you hit God's people as the church, Jesus says, you're hurting and persecuting me. And that gives us both a warning and an encouragement, doesn't it? First of all, it gives us a warning. Because sometimes people in the church hurt us and we get embittered. Or things in the church change and we don't like it. And so we begin to build up hate in our heart. And we feel the need to lash out in words or even actions in vi- violence against the church. And that should give us a warning. Be very wary of ho- harboring bitterness in your heart against the church. Because it's actually against Jesus himself. But it also gives us encouragement. Because what it means for us as the church is that when we do get persecuted... Jesus says, they're actually hurting me, and I'm right here with you in the midst of the pain. And so that should be a little bit of an encouragement to us. Now, I love what Jesus tells Saul after he knocks him to the ground. In verse 6, it says, rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. (laughs) Like, Jesus doesn't ask Paul's permission to come into his life. He just comes into his life. And that's just so awesome. He's just like, rise, you'll be told what to do. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're not working, you're not on your mission anymore, you're on mine. You work for me now. You belong to me now. That's what happens when you have an encounter with God. When you have a true encounter with God, God says to you, yeah, you you work for me now. (laughs) Like this encounter actually was so powerful for Paul that in Galatians 1.15, he says that when Christ appeared, he says, in me. He doesn't use the word to me. Some translations translated that, but the the original word says in me. And it's kind of confusing. You're like, what do you mean? But what he's trying to say is that this experience was so powerful. It wasn't just an outward appearance. It was an inward appearance to his heart. It was in him. And that shows us something about what we all need. We all need an inward experience with the risen Jesus Christ. It's not enough to have an outward experience with him. Satan has that. Satan has eyes that can see God. But we need an inward experience with God that's been transformed by him and by his presence. And that's what Paul says happened to him. And Jesus says, rise, go into the city, you'll be told what to do. I love that. Then in verse 7 it says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So they stood speechless. I think that this is Luke's way of saying, hey, there were other people around. They heard the voice. They couldn't see Jesus, but they heard the voice. They knew that something crazy happened. This is Luke's way of saying that this is a validated historical event. It's not like Paul ate some magic mushrooms that morning and had a weird trip out. Like, this was validated by other people who saw what happened. It actually happened. But the big idea here is this, is that in love, Jesus had a holy interruption on Paul's life. Paul was headed one way, which he thought was the right way, and Jesus intersected. He interrupted it. And that's all, what we all need, isn't it? Um, the, today, I was driving here to church, and my mind was, who knows where. I was thinking about the sermon and today and everything. 
and I forgot to check my blind spot as I changed lanes. And as I started to change lanes, I hear this, and I was, it woke me up. I was like, oh, snap, and I'd like come over. You know, maybe one of you was the one honking at me. I don't know. But what it was was it was a holy interruption because I had a blind spot. And that's what we all need. I'm so thankful that that happened because it could have led to a, a crash or it could have led to anything else. And in love, that guy gave me a holy interruption and maybe a middle finger too. I don't know. But it was, I'm very thankful for it. And in a sense, that's what we all need because we all have blind spots. And we all have parts of our heart where we think we're on the right way and we need God to blare his horn and interrupt our life and say, no, that's not how it is. I'm interrupting this. Now, Saul thought he was on the right path, but he found out he was opposing God. And this happens all the time. It happens in extreme ways all around the world. Like I know a lot of you are like, but we're not dragging people out of their homes and putting them in prison. No, you're not. But that is happening in some parts of the world. And people are doing that in the name of God. They really think that they're, they're doing it to honor God. And what we need to be praying for is that God would give them a holy interruption. So let me ask you, church, when's the last time that you prayed for terrorists? That God would have a holy interruption on their life out of love. When's the last time that you prayed for radical Hindus who are killing uh, Christians in northern India? When's the last time you prayed for, uh, you know, violent tribes in the Brazilian rainforest who are persecuting missionaries? This is something that we're all called to do. We need to be praying that God would have a holy interruption with them. So those are extreme ways that it's happening, but it's also happening in our culture in very subtle ways. Our culture is presenting to us all the time ways that are, quote unquote, the right path. Like, number one way I think that we see it is culture says the right path is that you need to focus on your personal happiness. The most important thing you need, culture says, is happiness at all costs. And if anybody stands in the way of your happiness, you get rid of them. You don't need them in your life. You don't need that bad influence. And if anybody, uh, you know, comes and tries to disrupt that, you, get, you, you, you ignore them. If there's anything that disrupts your happiness, you don't need it. And believing that lie may lead us to a path where we find ourselves opposing God. Because Jesus says, it's actually what will make you more happy is to be somebody who gives and not receives. And if you're going to really be one of my disciples, you have to be willing to die to yourself. And the way to life is to be willing to lose your life for my sake, he says. And he says that greatness in God's kingdom doesn't look like you making yourself great. It looks like becoming a servant to all, just like Jesus did to us, ultimately showing it on the cross. See, happiness for the Christian looks like the cross. That's kind of weird to think about, isn't it? But you see, it's, it's a partial truth. God does want us to be happy, absolutely, 100%. But he knows that our only way to be happy is if we're in him and we're aligning ourselves with his world. The next thing that culture tells us all the time is the right path is for you to be committed to you. Like, you be yourself. And don't let anybody else tell you what you ought to be. Like, you follow your heart. But what does the Bible say about our hearts? They're deceitful and wicked above all things. And the Bible says that if you try to follow your heart, you're going to find yourselves opposing God because your heart likes some awful stuff. And anybody who follows their heart, like me, knows that it doesn't all the time bring you closer to God, it brings you further from Him. 
And so, yes, God wants you to be true to yourself, but he knows that your true self is actually in following God's heart, not yours. And that's when you follow God's heart and you live in God's arms, that's where you're going to find your real self. And so what this means for us is like little things, like when you come to church, do you want to approach the Bible because you really want to do what it says, or do you approach the Bible because you want it to make it feel good about yourself? Like, and if it says something you disagree with, you're like, well, my heart says something different. I'm going to go with my heart. Like church, we're not above the Bible. The Bible's above us. We'll never be above the Bible. And so what this means is we need to be presenting our hearts to God and saying, God, show me your heart and form my heart so it's like your heart and do that with your word. I'm under your word. That's what it means to be a Christian. You see, the, that's why we need a holy interruption. We need an arrest. We need to be arrested by God. We need God to interrupt it because the reality is, is whoever you're thinking of in your mind that's doing those things, you're doing them too. And we need God to interrupt our blind spots. And if this passage tells us anything about our good God, it's this, that there's nobody too far gone for a holy arrest. <laughs> like, Paul hated Jesus. I doubt any of you, even if you, like, really hate Jesus, hate Jesus as much as Paul did. And Jesus still loved Paul. And he called Paul, and he called him by name. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was a very personal event. You see, there's nobody too far gone for the love of God. And God's love is great enough that it can swallow up all the hate of his people. That's good news. So let's talk about what happens when Saul gets arrested. Let's talk about the experience of this arrest. And we see it in verse 8. So it says, uh, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. That doesn't sound very fun, does it? Like he rose up and he was blind. That sucks. And then after that, he didn't eat or drink for three days. Like, I, I, we fasted as a church for Holy Week on Good Friday, and you got, everybody was just so ang- angry that day, you know, like we were just mean, like, it hurts to go without food, it hurts to go without water. This was a painful experience. And what we need to know is, first of all, that when you have a real encounter with the living God, it's not always comfortable. Sometimes it hurts. Um, And I believe what God was doing to Paul was he was showing Saul, I'm using those words interchangeably, uh, he was showing Saul his spiritual condition apart from Christ. You're blind. You think you know the direction you're going, but you don't. You don't know what's best for yourself. That's blindness. And, and it hurt. And, and so what happens here is Paul faces this blindness, and then he also goes without food and water for three days. Now, in the Jewish mindset, which he had, he was a very religious man, you would forego food and water when you were in times of great grief. And so what he was probably in, who knows with... Uh, he, he was probably experiencing such grief that he just realized he's been persecuting Jesus this whole time, the Messiah of the Old Testament. And that just wrecked him. And there's a real sense where every one of us, when we face, come face to face with the glory of God and our sin, we should be wrecked by our sin. It is an appropriate thing to cry over your sins, to have grief over them. He needed to have that pain. 
But God knew he needed to have that pain because it's only in that pain that God was able to administer his healing hand. You know, uh, it's like when you're riding a bike as a little kid and you fall down and you scrape up your arm and you go to your mom, you're like, mom, and you're looking for her to comfort you and to make it all go away. And she pulls out the bottle of peroxide. (laughs) This is going to hurt. But it's what you need. Because you need to cleanse out all the filth in that wound. And and that's what we need as sinners. We need God to pull out his peroxide. And when you experience his glory, that's what it's like. It hurts sometimes. But it's the way, it's the path to true healing and cleansing. So first, he had an experience of pain. Secondly, he had an experience of community, of courageous community. Look at what God does. Really funny here in the next section, verse 10. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man named Tarsus, named Saul, of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in the vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard of many things about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed. Now think about that for a moment. Ananias gets a vision from God. He's all excited. He's like, Oh, cool. God's going to tell me something awesome. And God's like, go to Saul. <laughs> now, picture this in your mind, like you're, you're, you're whatever, you're praying, you're at home, and a vision comes to you, and God says, hey, there's an ISIS leader down the street off of Los Altos. I want you to go pray for him. And you're like, but he has plans to, to blow us up. God's like, nah, he works for me now. Go pray for him. And that's what happened. It says, Ananias departed. What courageous faith. See, Ananias was a man arrested by the love of God. He knew that he didn't belong to himself, and so he was willing to have such kind of courage. And and let's continue on. It says, when he got there, in verse 17, it says, so Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Now pause there. He called him brother. Now, this is likely because Ananias had such confidence in the work of Jesus and what he had accomplished on the, on the cross that he was able to already forgive Paul. Because he knew that if Saul really had an encounter with Jesus, his sins were forgiven and Ananias didn't have to hold any bitterness against him. And he called him brother. And the Lord, and he said to him, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may again regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. So Ananias prays, and Saul is healed. Now, it's a beautiful thing. God could have healed Saul on his own, right? And him on his own, could have healed him on his own. But how did God work? Through his people. That's how our God works. You ask, how come God won't save my neighbor? Well, he's placed you, he is going to save your neighbor, but he's placed you next to your neighbor. <laughs> and he wants you to go to your neighbor. And what we see here with Ananias is that God often calls us to go to people we think are unsavable. Who's that person in your life? Is it your boss? 
Maybe you do know somebody who's, uh, you know, a very violent person. Is it a family member? Is it a friend? Is it a neighbor? God may want you to go to them. And what we need to be is willing servants, just like Ananias. And then, so he gets there and he lays his hand on him, the loving touch. And when he prays for Saul, Saul is healed. He's restored. And that is what the next thing is, is Saul has an experience of new light. It says immediately scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Now that had to be trippy to see. Like almost maybe like like colored contacts just falling off your eyes or something. I don't know. But it's a beautiful picture of what salvation is. I was blind, but now I see. See, God knocked down Saul so he could pick him up again. And what God was doing to Saul is he was showing him his spiritual condition apart from Christ. But upon receiving the Holy Spirit, his eyes were open to the beauty of Christ and Christ's world. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you might hear Christians talk about this. We say, I was lost, but now I'm found. We say things like, I've been saved. I was blind, but now I see. And what we're saying when we say that is, when I was on my own, I was a mess. But now that Jesus has brought me to himself, I see with real eyes. And things make sense. And I can actually see the glory of God. And I can actually, by his spirit, follow his ways. And it's a way different life. It changes you. Now think about how life-changing this would be for a guy who was blind. Like imagine being blind and all of a sudden you get a new set of eyeballs. Good ones that work. Like your whole life would be different. Where you would eat would be different. Where you would work would, would be different. What you could do would be different. You would have a whole new life. And that's the point. As soon as Saul's eyes were restored, newness happened. He became new. And that's what we see here, Evan. It says he rose up and he ate food. The time of mourning is over. It's time to celebrate. And then he was baptized. Baptism is a symbol of newness of life. Your sins are forgiven and you have a new direction, a new Lord, a new family, a new God, a new way of living. And that's what Saul had. He was made new. He was new. And I love what Ananias doesn't say. He doesn't say, Saul, I have a way for you to become holy. If you just do these things and follow these steps and follow these religious practices, you can become holy. No, he just lays his hand on him. The Holy Spirit comes and says, you were blind, but now you see by the power of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not following a bunch of steps so God will accept you. It's being touched by the love of God and being cleansed by the love of God because he already wants you. And so Paul has this experience of new life. And you see... What this means for us is with these three experiences, the experience of pain, the experience of community, and the experience of new life, that's what we need to be receptive to as a church if we call ourselves Christians. Because that's what an arrested life experience looks like. So first of all, we need to be ready to be convicted of our sin. Are you ready to be? Well, I guess nobody's ready to be convicted of their sin. But do we embrace it when it comes? Some of you, I feel like, are, you are convicted of your sin, but you just bury it deep down inside. And what you need to do is let yourself be convicted. Sometimes pain is for your healing. And you need to be convicted. Secondly, is we need to be a courageous community. We need to be like Ananias, who is asking God, God, help me to be sensitive to your call, and help me to have the courage to be obedient to your call. And we need to be ready to even go to our enemies, because that's what Jesus did for us. And then lastly, we need to be ready to have newness of life. And what that means is when we become Christians, we need to leave our old ways behind. 
And even if you've been a Christian for a long time, there's always that temptation to go back to your old way of living and you need to leave it behind. No blind person who's been given sight would walk around with their eyes closed. That's silly. You have a new life. So live into your new life. Leave the old way behind. That's what this means. That's what the arrested life looks like. And, and the arrested life will result, for my last point, in proclaiming Jesus and being willing to be persecuted for Jesus. And that's immediately what happens with Saul. Look here, it says, verse 19, it says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased in all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So what did Saul do? Immediately, he just started talking about Jesus. He's like, well, I had this encounter with him. I need to talk about him. And when you really encounter Jesus, that's, that will be what happens. You want to talk about him. You can't stop talking about him. You can't shut him up. Because that, you're just so arrested by his glory and his goodness that it just comes out and you're talking about him. And what Saul does is he goes to where he already has influence and he begins speaking about Jesus. And his influence, because he was a very smart man, he was a religious man, it was in the synagogue. Now, where's your place of influence? It may not be, it's probably not in a synagogue. <laughs> and it's probably not, it, you know, it may not be in a very public forum. But every one of us has influence somewhere. And what we're called to do to live an arrested life is be going to the places of our influence and speaking about the real Jesus. Showing that the entire Bible points in all of history points to the real Jesus. And that's what he did. But it didn't come without pain. Look at what happens in verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So what happens here is, so the Jews couldn't, conf- you know, they couldn't beat Paul in an argument. So they decided to kill him. I guess if you can't win the argument, you kill the man. That seems how it goes in Acts. They killed Jesus, they killed Stephen, now they want to kill Saul. And what's happening here is Saul is under such threat for his life that his people that he's led to Jesus have to lower him down a wall in a basket in the middle of the night. Now this is a turn of events from the beginning of chapter 9 to this chapter. I mean, it's only 24 verses. In the beginning, Paul is a persecutor, but here he's the persecuted. In the beginning, he's dragging families out of homes. And here he's being let down by a rope, running for his life. That's insane. What happens in the middle of it? A real encounter with the living God. And Paul is willing to face this. And so he has enemies on the outside. But here we're going to see in the next paragraph, he has enemies on the inside too. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. So sometimes, church, what this means is you're going to have people who persecute you who are not Christians, but other times you're going to be in the church and it's going to be people in the church who are going to give you resistance. And sometimes it's, it's not because they want to harm you, but it's because they don't trust you. And that still hurts. We just need to know that sometimes we're going to face enemies on the outside and enemies on the inside. But look at what God gave him in verse 27. He gave him a Barnabas. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord 
he spoke to him and how Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so Barnabas means son of encouragement. So when Paul was in the pits, God gave him a son of encouragement. Don't we have a good God? You know what? We need some Barnabases. <laughs> we need some sons. Who is a Barnabas in here? That's what we need. I need you to raise your hand so that you, we can say, you, encourage us. <laughs> now, how do you know if you're a Barnabas? Well, you won't feel the need to critique everybody all the time. If you're feeling the need to critique everybody all the time, you're probably not a Barnabas. Barnabas is our people who see people giving their effort and zeal to God, and they offer great encouragement to the church. And God, in his grace, offered this to Saul when Saul was down. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And they were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it multiplied. So here's the result of Paul's work. As Paul was faithful, as the church worked together, the church feared the Lord and walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That's what I want us to be as living stones. Where worship is a place where we have true reverence for God, but we're also comforted by the love of God and the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what we want? Now, what's interesting is this passage starts with Paul being a murderer and it ends with him being a missionary. And his name in the beginning is Saul, but later on in the book of Acts, he changes his name to Paul. Paul means little. Some people think it's because he was really a little guy, so people started calling him Paul. But a lot of people think that it's actually because that became Saul's view of himself. He used to think that he was great and mighty, but after this encounter with the Lord, he realized how small and needy he really was. And that's what led to his arrested life. We need to have an arrested life. Now, I've always been captivated by people that do have an arrested life, don't you? Who've been arrested by the love of God. Like, for instance, when I was in high school, I, I was not a studious reader. I did not like to read. But there was one book that I did read. It was called Bruchka. It was about this guy who was a missionary. And right out of, he was a young man, and, and he had some medical skills. And he just felt like God was saying, you need to go to the Modelone Indians in Brazil. And you need to go tell them about Jesus. And so he goes down there. And it's a dangerous task. He's like getting shot at with poisonous arrows. He's facing poisonous snakes. He gets so sick. He almost dies. One time he like coughs up a worm that's like this big. Like it's awful. And the whole time I'm like, this guy is crazy. Why would he do such a thing? Here's why. He was captivated and arrested by the love of Jesus. And when you're captivated and arrested by the love of Jesus, all sorts of crazy happens. I mean, think about it for Saul. How does he become Paul? How does he go from persecutor to persecuted? From murderer to missionary? It's because Jesus had an interaction with him that was insane. It was Jesus who met him on the road. It was Jesus who called his name. It was Jesus who showed him his sin. It was Jesus who gave him grief. And it was Jesus who sent Ananias. And it was Jesus who healed his blindness. And it was Jesus who restored his soul. It was Jesus who filled him with the spirit. It was Jesus who showed him the scriptures. It was all Jesus. And it's a picture of what the gospel is for us. The gospel is for us is that God does all the work. We get all the benefit. He does it all. We don't do an ounce. He does it all. It was God who created everything. It's God when we mess everything, he promised that Jesus was going to come. It was Jesus who uh, did come to us. He got off his throne and took on flesh. He moved into our neighborhood. 
It was Jesus who lived the perfect righteous life, facing every temptation we face, but conquering all of them. It was Jesus who went to the cross, not for his sin, but for ours. It was Jesus who went into the grave. It was Jesus who resurrected from the grave to be a new kind of humanity for his people. It was Jesus who ascended into heaven and seated on the right hand of uh, the throne of God. It's Jesus who will one day return to fix the broken world. Jesus does it all. And it's Jesus who had an encounter with you and me and every other believer in here. He did it, not us. Salvation is not we come a little way and God comes the rest. He comes the whole way. It's a one-way love. And when you're loved with that kind of love, you become arrested. You become arrested. You see that if you don't add an ounce to your salvation, there's no limit to what God can ask of you. Because he did it all. We are not our own, but we are, we are bought with a price. We belong to God. We are not our own, but we belong to God. Now, I was talking with a man yesterday, and uh, he told me that um, recently he did a DNA test. And there was a, a lady that he had been told for a long time that he thought was his daughter. And after the DNA test, he found out that she wasn't. And uh, the, the thing is, though, is that he had been, like, kind of starting to build a relationship. And throughout our whole life, you know, as much as he could, he was reaching out and trying to build a relationship with her and going to her graduation and, and doing things that a, a dad would try to do. And when the girl found out that he wasn't her dad, she said she was really sad because she said, the only thing an adopted daughter wants is to be wanted. And you were that for me. Now I'm confused because my, my real dad didn't want me. But I think that that's actually the real longing of every soul, to be wanted. And what we see here in this passage with Saul is that Jesus wants Saul and Jesus wants us. He wants us all. You are wanted. And when you understand that you're wanted, being arrested by Jesus doesn't become this burden. It becomes a freedom. Like, I love how Samuel Rutherford says it. He says, being arrested, you know, in other words, being arrested to Jesus is no more of a burden than wings are to a bird. Or a sail is to a sailboat. Like, would a bird be lighter without wings? Well, of course, but it couldn't fly. Would a sailboat be lighter without its sails? Yes, but it couldn't float. And as Christians, you might think you have more freedom apart from Christ, but you won't have life. It's only in Him that you will be your true self and your soul, full, your, your, your soul will find satisfaction. So let us be a people who've, who've been arrested. And if you're not a Christian, you're like, I want this, I need this, Jesus. I, I've been being wanted my whole life. Well, all you got to do is say, Jesus, I want you. And you're a Christian. It's very simple. So let's pray. God, help us to be arrested people. Thank you for showing us this story of Saul where... Um, like he hated you, God, but you wanted him. And it's so comforting to us because we have these kind of blind spots in our heart that, that really hate you and hate what you have to say. But it's just so comforting to know that you still want us. We only ask that you would, that you would interrupt our blind spots, that you would give us a holy interruption. We pray for the people all over the world who are facing persecution, that you would interrupt their persecutors and make them your own. We pray for um, our hearts, God, that you would make us receptive to your call like you did with Ananias, to be courageous, to go to people that we think are unsavable. 
And we pray that you would help us to live lives like Paul, who are eager to proclaim your name and even to suffer for it because they're so captivated by your love. We ask this in Jesus' name.